1: to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today is a real honor to welcome my guest, Dr. David Mortensen. He is a professor of weed ecology at the Pennsylvania State University. He has a long professional experience, including testifying to Congress about herbicide resistance, participating in workshops that include ecosystem services, Charting a Sustainable Path Forward and the Herbicide Resistance Summit. He is well published and the recipient of numerous awards, including the Sustainable Agriculture Leadership Award in 2014 from the Pennsylvania Association for Sustainable Agriculture and the Weed Science Society of America's Outstanding Peer Reviewed Paper, as well as Outstanding Researcher and Fellow. He has an impressive professional preparation. He received his undergraduate degree in botany, his master's degree in physiological ecology, and a Ph.D. in crop science and soil physics from North Carolina State University. Welcome, Dr. Mortensen.
0: Thank you, Melinda. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Well, I want to ask you, how did you become interested in weed science?
0: So, I think it's a subject that most people don't think a lot about but it's an interesting subject in its importance. About 70% of the pesticides that we use in agriculture today are herbicides. It's the kind of pesticide that's designed to kill weeds, growing in farmer's fields across the country. And so I had a real interest early on in going from a more basic botany education that I received at Duke University to applying some of the ideas that I learned about the ecology of weedy plants there to agricultural settings and had the good fortune to study at North Carolina State University where I, you know, really got my feet on the ground out in agricultural fields. And my interest was to work with farmers through the years and I've been doing this now for almost thirty years, where we could design approaches to managing agricultural pests where those management approaches relied less on pesticide use. And if you're gonna take a big hammer to that problem, if you're gonna look for where are most of those pesticides being used, the first place you look is in weed management given the 70% of the pests. Are, are used for that purpose, and that's what really got me going. I, I have a sustainable food systems interest and uh, environmental stewardship interest that kind of came together.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I wanted to have you on as a guest because I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the herbicide resistance that we're seeing, I think secondarily, to the GMO crops that were designed to be resistant to the herbicide glyphosate, but then also I want you to describe to us a little bit about what some of the unintended consequences beyond herbicide resistance have been in the field. You know, what kinds of biological changes have you seen?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we have these genetically modified crops, by and large, to date, You know, the big commercialization of a genetically modified trait was the modification of crops to make them resistant to herbicides. And the way that that was achieved, and then the idea was that if the crop plant was resistant to the herbicide, you could apply the herbicide over the top of the crop and kill the weeds, and the crop would be unaffected, and you would achieve the wheat killing, the wheat control that you wanted and desired in that field. That was the thinking. And so to achieve that, what happened was genetic engineering methods were used to introduce genes into crops like soybeans first, then corn, and then cotton, and alfalfa, crops like those. But the first one was soybean, basically soybean and corn that would make the plants resistant to a herbicide that kills most plants. It's not very selective. The farmer would apply the herbicide, the weeds would die, and the crop wouldn't die. So you would transform the crop genetically, and then the weeds would be killed. And this came online in 1996 in soybeans, and today... About 94% of the soybeans that are grown in the United States are genetically modified resistant soybean that have been made resistant to the herbicide glyphosate. You can then apply this herbicide glyphosate that kills weeds and it doesn't kill the soybean or the corn crop. A very large percentage of the corn has been transformed to be herbicide resistant. So back when I started, I started as a young scientists back in the mid to the late 1980s. In those days, seed companies were, there were many, 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 many independent seed companies. And then there were the input manufacturers. And those are the companies that manufactured and sold pesticides that would be used for pest management in the crops. During the late 80s and early 90s, there was a a huge collapsing of the number of seed breeding companies and many of them were bought up by the input companies. Like for example, the company that manufactured manufactures glyphosate and has the patent for glyphosate resistance is Monsanto. They bought many seed companies, Dow Agri Sciences bought many seed companies, there bought many seed companies. And soon it was the case that a very large proportion of the seed breeding companies were owned by the input manufacturing companies that also owned the patented resistance genes that were being inserted into the crop genome. And so there was what there's something happened then that's unique to agriculture. And, and it's something that I think is, you know, we don't hear a lot about because it's just not something that's discussed very openly, and that is that we had what I think of as packaging that occurred in the late 90s, and, and now today it's, it's manifested in a, in a very kind of complete way, and that packaging at first was you put the gene into the crop seed that you now own as a company, and you also own the herbicide that matches that gene in the crop, and you sell them together as a package. In the last five to ten years, the package has been expanded with insecticide and fungicide treatments that are applied to the seed of the crops. So this doesn't have anything to do with genetic modification, but just has to do with this one-stop shopping where the farmer buys the seed that's treated Has the genes in it, and then the company that's selling the seed is also selling the herbicide that's going to be applied that matches the genes that are in the crop. And that's kind of the way that a very large proportion of the corn and soybeans are being handled today. And that's kind of where things are.
1: You've laid a very nice framework for us to understand how these products came on the market and how. The manufacturers seem to have a tidy package in that they're selling both the seeds and the herbicides that are designed to be used with the seeds. But as many smart farmers predicted early on, we've seen weeds that are now developing resistance to the products designed to kill them. And so what concerns me is as a dietitian, as someone who pays attention to how the environment impacts our health and how food and water interact with that, is that there are now going to be new genetically modified crops that are resistant not only to the glyphosate, but now to another couple of herbicides, 2,4-D, as well as dicamba. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it's my understanding that when these products are tested for quote-unquote safety, they are tested individually and not in combination. So we have tests looking at glyphosate, but not glyphosate plus the inerts that come with it. And we have tests perhaps for 2,4-D as well as glyphosate, but not 2,4-D plus glyphosate together. So my concern is on the ecological systems that are exposed to these combined products, as well as the humans that are going to be drinking water and eating food that carry residues of these herbicides.
0: And, Melinda, I think you hit the nail on the head. I I think there's reason to be concerned about those things. We expected folks that study population genetics and people that study is because we've seen it with insecticide resistance as early as in the 1960s. There were many, many studies that documented the problems that arise when the same killing chemical is used on the pest that is targeted by that. know, aphids or corn borers, is the same problem exists with weedy plants that grow in your, you know, vegetable garden out in the backyard or in a farmer's field, common lamb's quarter or kochia or mare's tail. These plants, weedy plants and insects too, have a lot of genetic variation in their makeup. That means that there is some likelihood that there's a rare couple of individuals in that population that is carrying resistance traits that are selected for when you keep using the same killing thing. So when we started using the same herbicide, because there was one genetically modified trait that became such a big seller, which was the resistant trait to glyphosate, it was very predictable that we would see resistance begin to be uh, appearing in the weedy plant community that the farmers are trying to control. And honestly, you know, our best thinking about how to manage to avoid that resistance was largely ignored as the number of acres and the frequency of use of of this herbicide increased really, really dramatically. So much so that, like, this herbicide glyphosate wound up being, is still being, and went from a a very small number of the acres were being treated with the herbicide to most of the acres being treated with the herbicide and not only being treated once, but being treated several times during the growing season. This basically, so what this was, was it amounted to be, like, almost like the worst case for selecting for resistance, that it was almost a certainty that this was going to happen.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And um, and it did happen. And it did happen in a, in a big way, and it continues to happen now. And when I say in a big way, we are estimating from the best estimates, you know, based on expert opinion and, and some data on infestation outbreaks and things that, we now know that there are 24 species that have evolved resistance to this herbicide and those species more importantly infest some 60 million acres of cropland across the United States. That's, That's a huge deal. The thing that I think has frustrated and it's been unfortunate in my view and I feel like I feel very strongly about this. Arguing that we needed, we need to take a step back and look at what we're doing here, because as we were selecting for resistance, we started to see herbicide use increase. You know, best estimates right now are that we're using now forty percent more herbicide on soybean than we were before genetically modified crops came online, and the argument for for doing the genetically modified crops with the herbicide resistant trait was that we were going to reduce herbicide use.
1: Exactly. Again,
0: remember, you know, that's 70% of the pesticides, so forty percent increase in the seventy percent of the herbicides on this crop. This is not what we want to be doing. I was quite frustrated because my whole career, the and this isn't just me You know, I've chaired national competitive grant programs in Washington, D.C., where the, the whole focus of what we've been trying to do is to reduce reliance on pesticide use. So what we've seen to date then, Melinda, is we've seen this increase, but my concern is that because of the resistance that's developed, and this is where, you know, your question was ending you were saying we have now have this next generation of genetically modified crops that now doesn't just include one trait for one herbicide, but where we're adding a second trait that enables the person trying to kill these now resistant weeds to apply two things over the top of the crop. And those new traits that are being added are New traits for old herbicides. So, so these are some of our oldest herbicides, 2,4-D and dicamba. And we projected, and I think it's very much, I mean, it's what the USDA basically accepted our projection, but then, you know, ruled against what we had been arguing, that, that we're going to see a four to eight fold increase in the use of these compounds on our main crops across the United States, so a four- to eight-fold increase in the use of things like 2,4-D and dicamba. And I think that's a really bad idea. Yeah. Just, it just doesn't make any sense that we're doing that.
1: Let me take one moment and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we're speaking with Dr. David Mortensen. He is a weed ecology expert and professor of weed ecology at the Pennsylvania State University. You know, the EPA tells us that these herbicides are safe, and yet I don't think that we have enough evidence to say that we've looked at the unintended consequences of the combinations of these herbicides, and as you mentioned, this four- to eight-fold increase of their use, I fear that there will be changes in our environment that we don't see until it's too late.
0: Yeah. So earlier in our conversation, we were talking about the problem in society of over-specialization. And I think this is a good example of this problem, The focus is on coming out with a altered genome of the crop seed that lets us use these new pesticides, these new old pesticides over the crop seed. And our understanding of the broader reach of that decision, the decision that we're going to start doing our cropping in this way, where we're going to use more of these other compounds, these other pesticidal compounds, our understanding of the, of the broader reach of, of, the, of that decision is, is very, very limited, I would say. In what ways is it limited, we might ask. Just as you said, Melinda, our understanding of the, um, the way in which mixtures of these compounds work in the environment, the way in which mixtures of these compounds influence our health, the way in which mixtures of these compounds influence other plants that are not targeted, you know, for for being controlled by the herbicide, is very poorly understood. Actually, during the course of the discussions about this technology over the last couple of years, I've had the really good fortune of sitting in with some very thoughtful, you know, very bright people that have talked about some of their concerns about this, and some of those people are, are people that work in the area of, of public health, and this is not my area of expertise, but I have sat in with folks that are directors of medical centers, the Mount Sinai Medical Center, folks from the public health program at Harvard and the EcoToxicology Lab at Yale, some really renowned scientists, and increasing the use of herbicides like 2,4-D in the way that my group here at the university has projected, again, like, you know, order on the order of like four to eight-fold increases in the use, coupled with folks that work in the public health field who are very concerned and, you know, people like Phil Landergan, who was the chair of the National Academy of Sciences panel on pesticide effects on children who are very concerned about the exposure of children and of adults to, to these compounds, whether it be where they're in close proximity to the fields that are sprayed or to the consuming public or in the water that they're drinking, these are concerns and i don't I do not think that we know enough about the likelihood that these get into the water for us to be feeling comfortable that we're, you know, proceeding with the, with the deregulation of them, which actually has already, the decision to deregulate them, meaning the decision to use them, has already been approved by the USDA and the EPA in the fall. And there's quite a bit of debate now about how we might limit the scope of the implementation of that deregulation. In other words, limit the acres where it can be used.
1: And there's Uh, also the issue of drift from these herbicides onto plants that are very sensitive, like tomatoes and grapes. And I always think about, gosh, if we lost those crops by mistake, one of those unintended consequences, we would be losing from our plates – really beneficial foods. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a serious concern of mine. And interestingly, when, and I think the companies are concerned, the companies that sell these herbicides are concerned enough that when the deregulation decision was made in the fall, that, that the companies could read the seeds that have the the 2,4-D and the glyphosate trait in the seed, and that 2,4-D and glyphosate would be applied across these, you know, fields, large scale. The decision was made to allow that practice first in the states where, you know, that are predominantly the, are the corn and soybean states. Yeah. So these would be like the midwestern states. In my state, Pennsylvania, if there, there's some cool data that you can look at and look at the diversity of crops in a given local region. And in the states kind of on the fringes of the country, California, Pennsylvania, the Northeast, the North Central states like Michigan and Wisconsin, crop diversity is very high. You could have a small geographic region reporting district might have, you know, in the ballpark of 30 to 50 crops in a small reporting district, whereas, let's say, out where, where you are, Melinda, Missouri, Illinois, Iowa, the crop diversity drops to as low as three to six crops in a reporting district. So the likelihood that drift becomes a problem for an adjacent farmer In a place where crop diversity is low, is very low, and where crop diversity is high, let's say where you've got a lot of people growing peppers and tomatoes and grapes and crops like that that are known to be very sensitive to these kinds of herbicides, these auxinic herbicides, the the deregulation was not allowed in those states.
1: Mm. Now, you've got so much experience with weed science, You must have some ideas of alternatives to this, by lack of a better term, I would call it an herbicide treadmill. But through your research, and we just have a few minutes left, can you describe what some alternatives might be to this overuse of herbicides?
0: Yeah, so there definitely are alternatives, and we've been arguing as best we can, you know, let's look at some of the alternatives. And I've had people accuse me of being an anti-chemical radical because I've suggested strongly that we look at some alternatives to herbicide use. But I am not Necessarily saying no herbicides can be used in fact I you know for for the larger farms, I haven't been arguing that, but we could come way down on herbicide use. There have been studies done, reputable studies done in the midwest where we've reduced herbicide use significantly, like three quarters of the amount of herbicides used and had very high levels of pest suppression. And that's because we've done things like rotate the crops, increase the crop diversity and rotation. That's because occasionally tillage is used to break the life cycle of the weedy pest plants. And there again, I've been I've had people say, gosh, you know, if we're going to do no-till and you're suggesting we do some tillage, But actually, the the fact is that a lot of the so-called no-till is actually no-till maybe for a year and then tilled the next year and then not tilled the following year. And there's very good evidence from lots of studies that you can actually put together a combination of these tactics to keep the populations down. And another practice that we're very excited about is the potential for cover crops to achieve this pest suppression. And I think as we go forward, what we need to challenge ourselves with is to be thinking about methods of farming where we string together practices that don't just provide wheat Control and suppression, but actually provide many ecosystem services. And I think cover cropping is a great example of that. You well, get pest suppression, you get nitrogen fixation, you get enhanced carbon storage in the soil, etc. I mean, I, I could go on, but and that to me is a really exciting area. So we do have alternatives, and I think what we should be focusing on is figuring out ways that we Work with farmers to figure out which of these alternatives can be practically implemented you know, where they're tractable into the farming systems rather than to rely on a largely herbicidal fix to, to this problem.
1: Well, Dr. Mortensen, we'll have to end our interview there. I will direct people to your website for more information. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank my guest, Dr. David Mortensen, Professor of Weed Ecology at the Pennsylvania State University, and remind everyone that Food Fluth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you, Dr. Mortensen.
0: Thank you, Melinda.